This story is brought to your ears by all our fantastic supporters on Patreon. To get in the action yourself with bloopers, extras, and the occasional early story, join us at patreon.com slash voiceofallmtg. We'd like to thank our newest patrons, Nicholas Gravina and Lucas Tomas, for already donating. For more stories, or just a chat, visit voiceofallmtg.com. And now, Voice of All presents Unbowed, Episode 1. You speak with fish as well? Oh, mademoiselle, your skills are truly without number. The eels receded into the water at the sound of the man's voice. A lean baritone, yet unused to manhood. Not that it'd ever have occasion to mature. Vivian raked a considered look across the new arrival's countenance, taking in the saturnine features, the boyish softness of his mouth, his bloodless complexion. Vampires were eternal, both in habit and biology. Vivian unfolded to her feet. She was tall and brown, and muscled in a way that compelled troubadours to think of knights in disguise, her dark hair held back in a pragmatic ponytail. If Vivian was beautiful, no one had yet thought to remark upon the fact, more concerned, perhaps, by her martial demeanor and the cold, sated intensity of her regard. The sea billowed and lapped at the ship, hurling jeweled foam into the air. I talk to fish as much as I talk to dinosaurs. Vivian adjusted the placement of the arc bow, its ligature warm even through her doublet. Frederick, the vampire huntsman who'd elected himself her escort, spent a night and handfuls of a morning endeavoring to convince her the weapon needed to be stowed away, swaddled in oil paper, kept safe from the abrasive salt air. But Vivian refused. She would sooner be flayed than parted from the relic, crooked and bright as a spine sleeved in silver, the last piece of scala outside of her own skin and tendons. So what you are saying is that you are versed in their reverie dialect, acquainted with their similes, and gifted at interpreting their native anecdotes? Frederick beamed as though he expected to be rewarded for his grandiosity. He smelled of blood and brine and frankincense, a butcher at church, and even after days in his company, Vivian couldn't bring herself to untense in his presence. I'm saying I don't speak to fish. One of the eels rose to interrogate her with a look, agate eye bisected by a rectangular pupil, goat-like and animate, only to be chased away by the lowing of the ship's prized captive, a juvenile brontodon. The dinosaur was too big for its prison, both tail and throat tendrilled from portholes on each side of the vessel, endlessly beset by gulls and gulper fish. As well as Vivian could infer, the creature did not sleep, only moaned and howled through the hours. You do, however, speak to dinosaurs. A lascivious waggling of his brows. Behind him, Frederick's crew swarmed and seethed and shouted in a sublimely acrobatic creole. Vivian could only pick out one word in eight, the others too slang-tangled in lurid flourishes. But their excitement required no translation. Home was but a horizon away. 
She plucked the last of the fruit from her bucket and flung it at the brontodon, succulent vegetal flesh dripping sugar like beads of buckwheat honey. The reptile snapped its mouth closed around the morsel, guzzling a ragged scavenger bird in the bargain. It gazed dolefully at her and trumpeted in misery again. No. Then how do you explain what we saw? How do you explain the majesty of you standing there? A hand stretched to the beast. It takes Luno entire expeditions to return with but one of these beasts. But you, you sought them out on your own. Mademoiselle, you are either gifted or magic or both. Frederick twirled a hand upward and then paused, an anticipatory smile hunching his lips. Unfortunately for the vampire, Vivian had ceased paying attention. There will be medical attention waiting for the Brontodon, I hope. It will, like every new specimen, receive the finest attentions of a royal menagerie. Frederick palmed his breastbone and bowed low. Vivian took note of how he abstained from a direct answer and how glibly he smiled, filing both observations away behind a grimace she, if questioned, would blame on the wind. The planeswalker, tired of the simpering, the subtle innuendos, the strata of meaning layered one over another, Frederick's every word weighted with a multiplicity of nuance. Not for the first time, Vivian found herself regretting her decisions. She should have run them from the jungles. But Frederick, effect yet earnest, had so very many stories of a royal menagerie more impressive than myth, so enormous it held entire ecosystems behind its gilded teeth. What a trousseau of rarities, what treasures! Like nothing Vivian would ever see again, this lifetime or the next. The planeswalker bent and scooped the bucket into the crook of an arm, wiping her fingers on her breeches. As skiffs, each the same tint of pearl as distant Luneau, came to circle the ship, the sailors began a lusty, laughing chanty, one full of husbands and husbandry, and what debaucheries can be achieved between the two. Frederick looked over his shoulder, smile as false as the words to follow. I should apologize for my men. No, that is quite all right. It is about what I expect of civilized people. It took exactly 20 minutes for Luneau, all Byzantine alleys and Baroque balconies, to turn its stained sea glass eyes onto Vivian, and another tin for it to decide that the planeswalker wasn't worth the trouble. Vivian pulled on the human pickpocket's hair until his neck bent like his scruples, until there was barely room for air to slick down his windpipe. Then, and only then, did Vivian lean down, teeth an inch from his ear. Do we understand each other? The pickpocket squeaked like the hinges of a rusted skeleton lock. Mercy, mistress. A cup of my blood is penance. His shoulders scissored back as Vivian gave another tug. Luno, already bored with the spectacle, drowsed around them. Its vampire dockhands and its sailors made conversation with the human fishermen while 
aproned women, each at least as tall and brawny as Vivian, gutted oversized sturgeons by the water. Save for Frederick, no one paid mind to the pickpocket's plight, and even the vampire, a half-smile in its customary seat, seemed only amused. What is he talking about? Vivian's flesh pimpled in the limp, listless breeze. Frederick sank into a crouch and cupped the pickpocket's chin in one gloved hand. With the other, he brought forward a dirk. This is the currency of Lunot, mademoiselle. Vivian loosened her grip while keeping a knee wedged between the pickpocket's shoulders, eyes going wide. Her gaze flickered to the proffered weapon, held out to her hilt first. What do you expect me to do with this? <laughs> Did you not hear him? <laughs> oh, he wishes to offer you a cup of blood. No, I heard the boy. What do you expect me to do with his blood? I suppose that would depend on the current exchange rate. But I imagine you'd at least be able to finance a new wardrobe. Your proletariat nature isn't without its charm. However, I think the royals would be flattered if you changed your manner of dress for them. He dragged the red wag of muscle that was his tongue over his teeth. And Vivian couldn't help but think of a leech. So blood bloated it shone red as fresh paint. Or, if you are feeling generous, you could give him over to me. The church espouses use of a criminal element. The planeswalker slapped the dirk away. No! Mercy, mistress. Uh, mercy. Uh, I only wanted to leave Luno. Leave Luno? Frederick let go of the pickpocket's chin and stood, his silhouette bladed and burnished by the moonlight slanting through the alleys. A knot of nuns paused to review the tableau, the hymns of their flowing mother-of-pearl habits teethed with gold. And what will you do outside of this island? Join the brazen coalition? Those ruffians don't allow for anything but the most competent sailors. Perhaps you think to find a city yet civilized by the church? I suppose you could, but there you would need to work. You will not be able to pay for your food and your housing with drops of ruby from your vein. No, monsieur, you will not leave Luna. There is no space for you outside of these. Vivian lifted her voice over Frederick, not high enough for the tomber to horse in her hitch, but enough to signal she was glutted on the vampire's rhetoric. She rose, fingers gliding over the arc bow. The pickpocket stayed wisely supine. If I were a different woman, a more cynical one, I'd say you are bullying this boy into accepting his lot as livestock, and that Luno, pretty as a fresh-minted coin, is nothing but a glorified abattoir. You wound me, mademoiselle. His imperiousness dissipated, fat melting on an eager tongue. In its place, a new substrate of slyness, worse for its reprobate swagger. Runo is hardly a stockyard. If anything, I suppose you might call us a halfway house. Which takes payment in blood. Do you despise the lion as well? Do you take offense to the fact that we will not eat grain, but instead prefers the meat of the lamb? The right of redemption isn't without its consequences. We drink blood because we must, but we aren't barbaric about it. Frederick cocked his head, the breeze coiling through his tiered curls. A cup here, a portion there. 
Nothing that might kill the motor citizenry. We have timetables. And to Vivian's revulsion, he pouted. As for the matter of the boy, <sighs> I suppose I might have misstepped, but the Legion of Dusk does see itself as a caretaker of Ixalan. Here in Luno, we have the facilities to take care of people like him. But the rest of the world is not so lucky. And what matter of gentry would we be if we did not do our part to protect these lands? And the Brontodon? The myriad wildlife you dragged across the water to Luno? Is that for the same purpose? Vivian tapped the pickpocket with the curved edge of the arcbow. Go, she mouthed, and the boy fled down the pier into Luno proper, where the buildings stood pale and lustrous as cream. Preservation, mademoiselle. You never know when another species might go extinct. Ixalan is such a savage, unforgiving place. That smile again, as though they were all accomplices to the same good-natured lie. But please, we have wasted enough time. The wonders of Luno cannot be encompassed by mere words. Let me show you my city, and perhaps then you'll begin to see how wrong you were to assume poorly of us. Vivian sat silent as Frederick unrolled reams of praise to Luneau, gesticulating and genuflecting at the splendor of both country and capital. He narrated with indecorous gusto the preeminence of the sovereign couple, their virtues, the circumstances that precipitated such an exquisite union. And then he went on to alphabetize their accomplishments, chasing compliments with more of the same. It was all, Vivian thought to herself, so gauche. That there were lotus flowers laced through the balustrades of the city, gardens charting the plunge of its towers like the grasping hands of a desperate lover, trees parasitized by softly luminescent blossoms, was beside the point. At best, it only accented Vivian's disgust with the island nation. The air reeked of excess. Luno was artifice and arrogance, its every last wonder a contrivance. Its buildings were white marble, all dainty cafes wherever Vivian turned, all museums and shop fronts showcasing rich gowns and towering wigs. Luno resembled someone's dream of a city, clean and cultured and bereft of common things. Things like butcher shops and bakers and bailiffs patrolling cracked cobbled lanes. Only in the margins, only where Luno could tuck such eyesores away, hidden behind alleys or a crook in lanes, could Vivian see where humanity might toil. If there was any true beauty here, it was a piteous thing, strangled and suffocated by the whimsy of its undead tenants. But Vivian divulged nothing of her ruminations, only hooked fingers along the string of the arc-bow, and smiled dispassionately, an expression her companion interpreted as invitation. What is it like where you come from? Frederick traced a finger along the knob of bone that rose from Vivian's brown wrist, the motion precise as the pleating of his lace jabot, and turned her arm onto its back. 
his touch wandered up the tributaries of her veins, while Luneau, dusklit and haunting, flaunted itself through the window. Vivian tried not to think of an antlered silhouette rising into the sky, tried not to think of the screaming, the pop of skin as it crisps and breaks, tried not to think of how soundless it became as the world burned to white. She tried not to think of fire. It was beautiful. The carriage rolled on. She counted the bodies on the wall until the numbers fled from her mind, and then Vivian murmured the numbers like a chant. For one terrible moment, the planeswalker could understand Nicobolus, the death of Scala, the end of everything she'd known and loved. Here, flanked by the corpses of a hundred extinct species, their bodies threaded with wires, fat-starched and stiffened by a taxidermist concoctions, the antechamber gold and garish against the waxen sheen of fur. Vivian could think of nothing but the desire to see all this gone. Like nothing else, no? The hoard of treasures is a church unto itself, a worship of the natural world. Frederick's grasping hand on the crook of her elbow again, fingers locking around the joint. Vivian peeled herself from his grip. Your idea of how to demonstrate reverence is very different from mine. As it should be. We are not creatures of the same world. Noblemen and their entourages drifted past the pair, effete and absurd in their towering wigs. Minarets of hair teased into strange, unsubtle configurations. And that is what is so beautiful about existence. Beauty isn't something to be pinned to a wall. Oh, absolutely not. Better if it is allowed to remain alive, beautifully framed by filigree. I remember when they brought home the monstrous sword breeding pair. What a joy that was. It was an event, as they say. And they were such generous guests of a royal menagerie, too. Some animals, they simply expire, unwilling to put up a show. But there was so much theater with the bear, so much bombast. The male wasn't halfway as hearty as his counterpart. He died too quickly, and she followed after, wasting away in a show of tragedy so profound it was immortalized in a manuscript. Vivian swallowed around her rage. Show me more of Luno. The perfumed court lived up to its nickname. Its aristocracy was anointed with ambergris and rose water. Its knights dusted with salt and musk and holy incense. Even the supplicants and the servants, loose-wigged and cotton-garbed, stank of powders, always more powders. A glazing of particles that turned their skin nacreous in the evening's blue light. Vivian pressed a handkerchief to her nose and choked on its odor. Gagging, she ran her fingers along the edges, discovering too late the potpourri sewn into the hems. Nothing in Luno was sacred. Nothing here 
was natural. Mademoiselle Reed, are you all right? Frederick extended his arm. In the half hour they were apart, he somehow found time to exchange his hunting attire for a more flamboyant display. Ruffles and stuffed breeches, rendered in lilac and cream-colored satin, made bulbous his silhouette. I'm fine. I suppose I was just dumbstruck by the glories of your homeland. She threaded her arm through his, folding the handkerchief into quarters. In that case, do not let me distract you too much. Luno demands worship. There is nothing else on Ixalan quite like her. The Baron of Verno. He believes there are giants among the lizards we hunt. Gods. Creatures bigger than even language can encompass. One day, we will have them for the royal menagerie. And after that, history will never be able to name a rival. I see. Frederick sniffed. Pigment stained his cheeks. Not pink, as was traditional, a rosy counterfeit of vitality, but a blush of turquoise, which evoked in Vivian the memory of a crab-nibbled carcass she'd once fished out of the sea. Ah, mademoiselle, I am sure you think the patriotism unwarranted. But you've seen the royal menagerie. Surely you must understand. Anger a frizzen across her skin. The arcbow seemed to thrum against the swoop of her spine, and for a moment it subsumed her, a hunger like a well with no end. It wanted to be knocked. No, she wanted the relic's power knocked and angled at Luno's heart. The arcbow loathed this place. Vivian knew, the way the oak and the alder knew to rouse themselves in spring, the way fire knew to find the fat within one's flesh. There would be no walking away from Luno. Together, they would see it gone. But not yet. Not yet. They needed to wait. Vivian schooled her voice for politeness. A smile tipped into place. Charm was too much to ask for. The reflections regarded them from every angle of the high-ceilinged building. Where the architecture wasn't indigo stone, it was gold and shining metal, florid marquetry and grand stucco work, oil lamps and mage lights cunningly positioned to ensure no one might ever need squint against an unseemly glare. It held, in Vivian's opinion, all the tenderness and compassion absent from certain other elements of Luno. Forgive me, but all I saw were cages full of sick and dying animals and a hall resplendent with a circus of cadavers. If that was your pride and joy, you may wish to consider investing in another. <laughs> oh, mademoiselle. If we turned ourselves inside out to keep everything alive, where would we put them all? The royal menagerie is the largest of its kind in Ixalan, but it is not magic. Besides, how would the Baron pursue his science if there were no bodies to use an autopsy? The corridor spread into a palatial lobby. Above them, a vaulted ceiling frescoed with ships in conflict with the Kraken. Waitstaff ferried brass plates laden with goblets through a growing crowd of courtiers. Their corpuses doubled in the mirror-plated floor. The clothes do not make the monk. 
no matter how they primped and perfumed themselves, no matter how many acres of crushed velvet they draped over their bodies embalmed in dark magic, how they played at refinement, these creatures were still corpses. Frederick patted Vivian's hand, and it took all of her not to slap his fingers away. By the way, Frederick exchanged air kisses with a pale woman who barely deigned to glance at Vivian, her cleavage frosted with diamond dust. I must congratulate you on your sense of timing. You chose the perfect occasion to visit Lunor. And why is that? The woman turned, snapping open a fan. Lace foamed at her collar, and down along the ends of her sleeves, wove into the gaudy edifice of her alabaster wig. She alone of the attendees smelled of nothing but mausoleums and marrow and bone and dirt. Poor thing. Do they teach you nothing when you come from, mademoiselle? Tonight's festivities are famous across Ixalan. It is... A sigh, as if to broadcast the burden that was translation. The tourdillon with the truculent thunder. Did I say that correctly, Frédéric? No. No, don't tell me. I don't care enough. She pumped her fan slowly. A beauty mark punctuated her philtrum. Just know that you are unbearably fortunate, mademoiselle. There are rules in Luno which hawks their firstborns to attend this gala. Honestly, Frederic, why did you even bring her? For novelty, I imagine. Vivian's attention made an orbit of the space. Too many of them, and too little known of what they were capable. She would have to wait and watch and wonder for the time being. Like everything else in this place. Tittering greeted Vivian's repost high-pitched and theatrical, while Frederick looked on like an indulgent uncle. Sweet mercies, this one has teeth. My, what a delight, my dear. Before Vivian could marshal her rage, double doors creaked apart, admitting first a straight-backed couple in gaudily elaborate regalia, their skulls crested with ivory wigs. Of the two, the woman, severe and slim, appeared less comfortable with the finery. She had a hunter's stock, the gait of someone more accustomed to leathers and the thump of a sore against her hip. Despite that faint air of unease, her expression was beatific, as was the look worn by her partner, a gaunt-faced man with immaculate facial hair, shoulders stooped as though weighed down by the crown he wore like a burden. King Lucard and Queen Salazar, you should bow to them. Frederick murmured into Vivian's ear, his breath cold on the lobe. She flicked a look behind her. No. The sovereign rulers of Luneau tipped their heads, and the crowd responded in kind. The women curtsied. The men bowed. The heels of their palms pressed to their hearts. Alone of them, Vivian stood unbowed chin tipped up. The assembled gentry straightened as the royals drifted past, children in teal frocks coming to take hold of their trains. If any of them took notice of her impudence, they did not think it fit to comment. Audacious. You have such interesting tastes and friends. Only the finest. The doors opened again. A hush ran through the congregation. From the penumbra emerged a rangy fellow clad simply in a cassock, 
white hand steeple at his sternum. His manner exuded a choreographed austerity, every motion imbued with purpose. He raised his head, and the crowd sighed at the sight of him, an ecstatic noise. Vivian cocked her head. And who is he? The Baron of Vernon. <laughs> the woman sighed, fanning herself, tongue wrapping around the honorific, cradling it like a newborn messiah. Marquois Jean Jacquin. He rules over the royal menagerie and the wonders in the Hall of Treasures. Messieurs, mademoiselles. His ophidian gaze found Vivian through the press of bodies, lidded and lazy. Held her, golden sap, hoping to drown an unsuspecting insect. Special guests, we are ready for you. The opening act spoiled the breath in Vivian's lungs, left her panting, and she sat, blood seeping from where her nails gouged half-moons into her palms, as a man wafted a torch beneath a lizard's belly. It shrilled while its hide blackened in the fire, splotches of color radiating from the burns. Arabesques of puce and orange, Venus trails of fading blue, its terror coaxed into an art. The show only grew worse thereon. The performers brought forward bears in ill-fitting frocks and absurd panniers, raptors dressed as marquises, vice-countesses incarnated as knock-kneed cranes, waltzing across hot coals in halting leaps. Each was tortured, tormented, teased in turn, while the audiences howled song titles to a brass cabaret in the pit, and the monarchs of Luna conversed with their ministers. This is cruelty! No, this is entertainment. <laughs> now, sit down, Mademoiselle Reed, please. Frederick sucked at his teeth and clenched fingers around her wrist. The crowd roared as the band laid down a triumphant anthem, brass scaffolding a rolling, rippling drumbeat. Something was happening. Vivian jerked her attention toward the stage. A finger hooked over the arcbow's bowstring. Ladies and gentlemen. There he was once more, the priest of this place. The man stood alone. No accoutrement or accessory, no chains of office. Black robes, calcium-pale hands raised to the masses. The music dimmed to a shiver of a flute, like some lonely thing dying in the dark. I thank you for your patience, your tolerance of the lesser acts. We know why you are here. Silence washed over the Colosseum, taut. The man commanded their gazes, hollowed in his pulpit of light. He lowered his voice as Vivian took aim, his voice a holy hush. Our finest spend their months in the savage wilderness, stalking through the undergrowth. They wage war against nature, they die in droves, all in service to your pleasure. Here his tone warmed, and the crowd murmured in pleasure. All in the pursuit of the grandest of prizes, the finest of monsters to bring home to you. 
night specimen is particularly intriguing, a behemoth even the Golden City fears. Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to this evening's most special guest. And the curtains drew back, red velvets pulled away by lush ropes of braided gold. The spotlights abandoned the man in black and joined like hands laced in prayer, illuminating a route for whatever would soon emerge. From the dark, something screamed its rage. A new monster cell from the depths of the Ixalan jungles. More impressive even than our breeding pair. Fiercer, still full of that primal fire. That sound. It wasn't the Brontodon. It couldn't be. Vivian knew ruminants. They did not have the throat for such sounds. There wasn't space in a body like that, no room with the multiplicity of stomachs, the knowledge of death riding low in their bellies. This was something else. Something bigger, angrier, something that would eat up the world if it was given half the chance, and, judging by that call, it wanted nothing less. It ached to swallow them whole. But the shambling, sad thing that emerged from the gloom could barely hold itself upright, let alone put up a fight. Vivian forgot herself at the horror that stumbled into view, a gasp rasping up her throat. The creature was once massive, majestic even, but now it stood stooped and sunken, starved of everything but fury. Someone had tortured it. Someone, Vivian realized with a pang of horror, had plucked the largest teeth from its head. I am done. The arcbow sang out at the downward stroke of Vivian's finger, suddenly lambent with power, and Scala, as it was, as it should have been, as it should have stayed, was alive again, if only for that moment. The audience did not care, not for Vivian or for the plight of the monstrosaur. And why would they, Vivian thought. Nothing mattered to these vampires but their games, their posturing and preening jibes. Soldiers advanced on the creature, a flashing half-circle of steel and plumed hats. Their caution was performative. There was no way it could have retaliated. Not like this. Not with manacles on every limb, its hide stippled with scars, two men at each end tugging its hunched body down low. Nonetheless, that didn't make its suffering less of a sport for its audience. If anything, it seemed to delight the crowd. This way, the soldiers had space for invention. What misery those soldiers brought to being. They worked holes through the monstrosaur's hide with their pike tips, constellations of new wounds amid a patchwork nebula of scars. They scratched at its eyes, one already filmed with milk, the other jaundiced and rolling in its socket. They worried at its body like crows, or dogs, or spoiled children drunk on the absence of consequence. Madam, please. Before Frederick could speak another word, Vivian notched an arrow. Before Frederick could breathe out, she let go. The wood blazed green as the projectile sang through the air. It hit the floor beside where the man in black stood, shaft trembling from the impact. And Vivian 
had enough time to salute him, two fingers to smiling lips, before the seething, glimmering green outline of a hydra wrenched itself from the arrowhead and howled its hunger for the world to see. Luneau did not know how to contend with hydras. It had, over the years, learned to accommodate dinosaurs and megafauna of comparable size, but these were separate taxonomies of danger. The wildlife of Ixalan, while ferocious, responded to decapitation in the traditional fashion. They laid down and died. The hydra, however, did not. The fact it was made of magic didn't help either. Two of its heads, shimmering and green, took hold of a screaming noble. One dug its claws into his shoulder, and the other latched onto a calf. They pulled, and he came apart. Vivian loped down through the stands and into the stampede of evacuating guests, guards racing behind her, shouting for the planeswalker to stop. The planeswalker continued to run. She vaulted over a duke who dropped to his knees, wig clinging to his skull by a strip of sweat-soaked prayer. She ran as the monstrous sore, forgotten by its handlers, roared in defiance. In the chaos that had ensued, the beast had snapped a leg, trying and failing to snare one of the fleeing performers. Bone protruded from the rags of its knee, but that wasn't enough to dissuade it. It screamed for retribution, for rage, for whatever ineffable hope that dragged it forward, inch by inch, toward the guards advancing on the Hydra. The dinosaur swung its head. Teeth found flesh, the hollow of a poorly armored hip. It bit down. Crippled, it had no way to stand, but it could still pendulate its skull, still crush its quarry against the mortar and the marquetry of the stage, the body inside the ornate armor rendering to a bone-bitten mush. And as it did, it screamed, and this time there was triumph in the noise. Vivian swiveled, fell to a knee, took aim, and let fly an arrow. The palaka worm launched itself forward, all mouth and sinuous body glowing green. The guards paused, dumbstruck by the sight. Vivian did not wait for the aftermath. She stood instead and renewed her sprint toward the stage. Even as screaming rose up at her back, the sound quickly muffled by the snap of the worm's jaws. She didn't have to look. She knew what'd follow. As was often the case with the worm's victims, they likely died with astonishment on their faces. No one ever expects to be perfectly bite-sized. Vivian leapt onto a railing and allowed the momentum to carry her down. She knocked an arrow, fired again. On this occasion, it was an herbivore that burst from the point of impact, staggering colt-legged onto an uneven canter, the stag. Body a carapace like a pangolin, spade-shaped antlers swept back from its skull like raised wings, making several orbits around the arena before at last it took notice of the guards. Startled by its appearance, someone had flung a pike at the animal. Their throw was perfect. It sailed through the green glimmer of the stag's muscled shoulder. 
but the ethereal creature bucked like it had been hit, kicking out both sets of legs before at last rearing onto its hind hooves. The guards had accounted for dumb instinct, animal reflexes tethered to the trigger points of pain and rapture. But Scala, beautiful and voracious, Scala of the mangrove strangled monsoons and the fireflies and the wildfires that sang giddily of the new seasons. Scala's wildlife, down to the last coral-striped ant, was cannier than that. The stag did not panic. It barreled down on its assailant, shimmering antlers bent at a 90-degree angle, rage in its eyes and in the set of its expression guard had enough time to inhale before the stag, taller than Luno's finest by several hands, scooped him up and flung him into a wall. A crack, short and sudden and sickening. His body wrinkled to a heap as he slid down onto the floor. Vivian landed delicately beside the stage, Arkbo still at ready. The Palaka Worm's last triumphant bellow shuddered through the arena its percussions amplified by the acoustics of the theater, so loud that it thinned the world in Vivian's ears to a whine. It was followed by shouting. She snapped a look across the Colosseum, gaze walking up the tiered seats to where the Baron of Vernot stood in the aisles, ringed by men with crossbows. Her surviving pursuers stood with them. You! The planeswalker bared a snarl. This place is an abomination. Something flared in the Baron's gaze. A look not unlike recognition, half-smile fixing itself in place as he descended the steps. Only a handful more arrows. Vivian narrowed her eyes at the crossbows, wondering which of her magical menagerie to call. The wasps, or the rainbow-breasted birds with the scimitar beaks. The devouring worm. The grizzly bear from her earliest memories, smelling of cold water and mountains and animal spore. You worlds are always the same. Always so sure of the shape of the world. Always so frightened of the idea of change. Do you have any idea how many of you I have seen? How many of you I have dealt with? Half of the Baron's entourage poured past him and down, down into the fray where corpses lay, gleaming sickly. They broke into two rows. The first went down to their knees, while the second stood braced. They took aim at the Hydra as it began to come apart in a convulsion of emerald sparks. Speeches are such a thing with tyrants, aren't they? Vivian freed another arrow from her quiver. The wasps, she decided. People like you are so in love with your voice. Tyrant? <laughs> Please, mademoiselle, I am nothing but a humble researcher. Even my barony was forced upon me. A gift from her royal highness. Vivian thought back to her first glimpse of the queen, of the sharp-featured face beneath its stiff crown of marble curls, that unsmiling mouth and abstracted gaze, attention already elsewhere. She had sat slumped at her throne, chin held in the cup of her palm, bored with the tableau, bored with the cruelty. Such a woman wouldn't play favorites. But the Baron did not look like a man who cared. Whatever the case. Vivian knocked her arrow, every motion deliberate. The crossbowman 
rallied around the Baron. I will see Luno pay for what it has done to this world. This time, they did not hesitate. They released their crossbow bolts, only to see their assaults sail harmlessly through the Hydra, even as it finally dissipated. I'm sure you'd like that, but what I would like is to know more about that bow of yours. The Baron's gaze ticked to the arc bow in Vivian's grip. What a fascinating weapon. How do you use it? Where do your creatures come from? In answer, Vivian let fly her arrow. Wasps corkscrewed from the ensuing contrails, translucent wings iridescent for a moment before they shook loose of the enchantment. The insects coalescing into a swarm so thick it darkened the air. Vivian sprinted forward in their wake, feeling every copper-banded body thrum beneath her thoughts. The lambent wasps were the size of hounds, of horses, all with appetites to match. No queen in sight, no nest, but that hardly mattered. Hunger was even older than the memory of them. Scala, Vivian panted as she traded the arcbow for her daggers. The wasps parted, revealing the Baron, hands pressed together as though in prayer, his smile serene. We are the dead of Scala. She brought her blades down, twisted, felt steel slot between ribs, felt the iron catch in soft tissue. Vivian jerked her wrists, and the daggers sliced through membrane. But the Baron's placid expression did not change. He only looked up. And when he smiled, full-teethed, Vivian had a moment to think on how red his tongue was, how plump his mouth, and how much he reminded her of a sated lamprey. His fingers closed around Vivian's own, almost tender, his touch scorching. My turn. The Baron backhanded Vivian, a blow so casual, so artless, that Vivian found herself surprised by its force. She skidded backward, away from the point of impact. A wet heat dribbled along the corner of her jaw. Vivian mopped at her chin with the back of a hand and snarled. Ah, were you expecting a dandy then? The Baron wrenched Vivian's daggers from his chest and flung them onto the floor. I'm afraid I'd have to disappoint. I'll manage. You couldn't rely on weapons alone in Scala. Nature did not wait for duels, for rituals, for men to unsheathe their swords. Often, it was nothing but tooth and talon and tendon. Vivian spun into a roundhouse kick, stopping the Baron mid-sentence, hooked a leg along his shoulder, and allowed momentum to pull them both down onto the ground. Pain burst along her shoulder. The fall hadn't gone quite right. She had taken too much of the Baron's weight on her, but Vivian refused to be deterred. She reared up, bringing the arcbow down like a bludgeon, taking aim at the Baron's temple. Vivian managed three sharp shots to her quarry's head before his minions arrived to drag her away. Vivian fought, rabidly and with the bitter abandon of someone who had run out of things to lose. She took two guards to unconsciousness with her, the first with a strategic kick to the head, the other with a blow from an elbow, one so forceful that Vivian heard the small bones of the man crack in the recoil. It was, she decided, as awareness bled from her, at least a decent last stand.
Thank you for listening to this production of Voice of All. As listener-supported entertainment, we rely on you not just for the voices of the characters, but also to keep us going and growing. If you enjoyed what you heard, please support us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, or following us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, or just plain sharing with your friends. You can also support us financially on Patreon for exclusive perks. Unbowed was written by Cassandra Kaw. The podcast was produced and edited by Gendo Keshi, with sound editing by Grace Noir. This week's story featured the voice talents of Ozzy Snedden, Stephanie Malia Morris, Sam Mansfield, Brooke Stutler, and Stephen Province. Voice of All is unofficial fan content, permitted under the Wizards of the Coast fan content policy. Magic the Gathering is copyright Wizards of the Coast. Thanks so much for listening. And y'all have a great day. <laughs>